welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 11, recorded on February 19th, 2019. Screaming in the last week of the Cloud Pod. All right, good evening, guys. How's it going today? Fantastic. How about you? It's going well. I am enjoying a lovely uh, McAllen 12-year today, so that is making the night much better. How about you, Peter? How's it going this evening? Yeah, I'm hanging in there, and I've got I've got a uh, Fort Point Tropical IPA. The best thing about this one, and I saved this. I've been dying to take a sip, but it's in a can, so I, now you get to listen to it open. <laughs> Very, very nice. Well, uh, I have a surprise for both of you today. We have a fantastic guest host with us tonight, Corey Quinn, uh, who is a former sponsor of the podcast uh, with the last week in AWS newsletter. Uh, so I'll let Corey introduce himself and what makes him Twitter famous. It turns out that when you grow up in Maine, you stay inside for nine months out of the year because it's freezing. And all you can do for those nine months is develop personality disorders. As it turns out, mine tended towards snark, sarcasm, and generally making fun of cloud computing. And that, for some strange twist of fate, became something marketable. So yeah, I make Last Week in AWS a sarcastic newsletter. I host the Screaming in the Cloud podcast, which is surprisingly not sarcastic. And I wind up also saving money off the horrifying AWS bill for large enterprise environments. And you have a fantastic dog that's uh, visiting you at this moment. Yes, that's less dog, more weasel, but that's okay. All things can be fixed in the fullness of time with a heavy enough textbook. Well, you are the second guest we've had on the show, so we're excited to uh, see where we get up on this episode. We will start tonight with some follow-up related to last week, so you'll be completely in the dark on this one, Corey, other than we walked you through the topics earlier. But Azure did finally post a post about the Run-C vulnerability for Azure containers. Um, as we talked about last week, uh, there is a pretty serious Run-C vulnerability for Docker that if you still have not yet patched, uh, you are now very, very late in patching that. Azure also took the opportunity to hype up the fact that they offer periodic scanning with the Azure Security Center, including FIM capabilities. Um, so they actually took this as an opportunity, even though late, to tout their own services, which I give, applaud them for their efforts. You've got to give Azure a little bit of credit in that they are a Microsoft subsidiary. They're going to fix it, that's clear, but they're not going to release it until Patch Tuesday. That's how it works. Definitely, definitely. Our other follow-up item for this week, the Warriors, that we talked about last week, had selected GCP as their public cloud provider for JPMC Center, which is their new arena being built in San Francisco. Then hell froze over, and Steve Ballmer announced that <laughs> the Clippers are going with Amazon Web Services as their preferred public cloud provider, as well as the engine powering the augmented reality Clipper Court Vision app. And Steve was quoted as saying, do I bleed Microsoft? Of course I bleed Microsoft, but Amazon has done a nice job. Steve Ballmer, which I can't imagine how much pain he was in saying that sentence. Uh, not a lot. He's obviously a deep cover agent. He's been bleeding Microsoft for 20 years of a lot of talent, of a lot of opportunity, and he's just continuing his work of sabotaging Microsoft, even though he doesn't work there anymore. People tend to revert to type. <laughs> I just think it's great that the NBA is uh, on our show now twice in a row. I mean, we are we do live in the Bay Area, uh, so you know, the Warriors are really the only team going for us right now, so we have to regularly talk about them. Absolutely. Moving on to our new news for the week, 
Google has announced that at RSA, they will be providing uh, 20 security talks throughout the conference at a remote location from the conference um, at Bespoke, which is a bar slash pub, I believe, about a five-minute walk from Moscone Center. In addition to the fact they will have a booth at the conference and several breakout sessions. So here you go, Google trying to siphon away conference goers to uh, their offsite to then hypnotize them for all things cloud. They have a booth, so they're a sponsor. So whatever they're doing has to be within the... uh... Uh, rules and regulations of being a sponsor at RSA. I think it's cool that there's more and more connection between RSA and the cloud providers, given that security is always like the number one issue going into the cloud. So I think I'm surprised it hasn't happened earlier. May I comment? Always. First, I understand that they're not having enough talks to satisfy them at RSA itself. It's RSA. You're not allowed to give a talk there at that security conference unless you're talking about firewalls and the threat models that are at least 25 years old. I get it. My problem is that Google is taking over a local bar slash restaurant and doing a mini conference because they aren't able to talk enough about the things they care about in the main conference, which is awesome for me. My marketing budget's about $8 and I can probably talk a bar into hosting me. You're Google. You trip over piles of money on your way to turn off things that people love. What are you doing? Why is this what your approach is for a conference? It's like Oracle at reInvent. Instead of doing something uplifting and awesome, they wind up buying a fleet of Teslas to circle around saying, cut your AWS bill in half by switching to Oracle, guaranteed, because picking Oracle to save money is an appealing statement to the dumbest person alive. It has a lot of money that goes into it, but absolutely no cleverness, no nuance, and no higher calling. And this feels like Google stumbling its way into that. It's disappointing. What if they're really good talks, though? If they're really good talks, I think you could probably, call it a hunch here, throw your own style of conference, given that you're Google, (laughs) and be able to provide a venue for these things. Now, I understand that most of your events don't have room for these talks, given that you want to do a keynote that is seven hours long. So... They should go the way of Amazon and have their own security conference like Reinforce. Oh, absolutely. The Reinforce conference and the ReMars AI conference and the ReInvent conference. I love the naming scheme of conferences named after email subject lines. That's great. I keep hoping that they're going to follow suit with their global partner summit and call it Reincompetency. But so far, no dice. We're hoping. Well, uh, Google Next is coming up in April. So maybe they can uh, replay these security talks and get uh, twice the ROI for them. They aren't going to have time to do that. They're going to be too busy deprecating things that they announced earlier in the keynote. (laughs) Indeed. So Liz Fong Jones, who is well known in the SRE space, uh, has just recently left Google. She worked there for 11 years uh, and was a big part of the uh, the SRE book. Um, She wrote a blog post this week talking about her grave concerns over how Google makes strategic decisions, in particular around what they're doing for the LGBT community, escalation of harassment, compromising on ethics, and the payouts they've done to some of their executives who were caught in uh, sexual harassment issues and Me Too movement issues. Uh, so, you know, pretty scathing takedown of what she sees as a flaw in the Google system and this, uh, the policies and the culture that they have there. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, Facebook is the other company that's been really beaten up, particularly around their culture of anti-privacy and, and really what they're doing. It's if these companies start bleeding talent like this, what do you? What, where does that lead us? I've met Liz a handful of times, and I'm not a friend of hers in the same sense that I would generally apply the term friend to. But every time I've spoken with her, I've come away from the conversation deeply impressed. She's 
empathetic. She has forgotten more about deep level computing than I'll ever know. And she has for a long time been one of Google's shining lights. Her leaving is something I view almost as a canary where when she no longer sees a potential workable path for her to remain at Google, well, that means that something foundational has changed. And that means it's time for me to look at Google through a very different lens than I historically have. I considered Google to be an incredibly aspirational place to work one day. That when I was in my early formative years of developing my career, I thought one day I might like to work at Google. Today, if Google were to reach out, my immediate response would be derision based on that. It's easy to make cheap jokes about, oh, Liz doesn't work there anymore, yet something else that was amazing with a Google label now doesn't work at Google, doesn't belong at Google anymore. It makes some deprecation reference, but this goes deeper than just casual jokes. This is effectively a damning indictment of Google not wanting to take a strong stand in favor of humanity, in favor of empathy. And that is their choice. They're a company. I get that. But to think that folks in the community are going to largely sit there and just watch this happen without comment, without any form of feedback or pushback, or maybe that's crappy, is a little bit naive on their part. I mean, I mean, I'm in a weird position. I don't have any direct employer. I don't have any partnerships. I don't have any real controls over what I say about various vendors. But looking at this, I find that Google is increasingly becoming a company that isn't really a great partner for businesses, not really a great place to work for humans. And sure, they build some cool stuff. But I'm at a point now where I have lost virtually all patience with them. Do you think part of the problem is the is the elite nature and the very competitive nature of, of working there? Yes and no. Uh, when I talk to engineers at Microsoft or Amazon, first, it, it's very clear that there is no, oh, if you don't know how to write code, just go work at one of those companies. Every engineer at these companies is more than capable. These are not settlement jobs that you take. The problem is, is that there's almost a cultural mythology that Google knows best, where if you work at Google, you are fundamentally one of the best in the world. Well, no company out there has a motto of we're number two. And I think that a lack of awareness that the entire industry is competing for the same talent and offering different incentives and courting different people is something of a realization that Google's been slow to come to. I mean, I don't have any internal insight into what life is like at Google. But from the outside, based upon stories others have told, I am severely unimpressed. I think one of the damning things for me was the um, the difference in the way they treat contractors versus employees. And I understand the need for two different tiers of, of staff, but it seems to be a very much an us and them thing, which it doesn't appear to foster the right kind of environment to begin with. Right. It's A lot of companies are falling into this pattern where it's almost a bimodal distribution of, are you a contractor or are you people? And that's not a great look for anyone. It's, I tend to not be a huge fan of that entire model. I mean, having been a consultant myself and gone through a number of different environments where I've been treated everywhere from people spit on me when I walk through the door-ish to I have my own office with a door. I tend to see all, all kinds, but I've never seen a great culture that treated contractors poorly. And a previous employer, I... Um, I refused to go to the you know, the holiday Christmas party kind of thing because it was employees only. And probably 30% of the people I worked with were, were contractors. In fact, I started off as a contractor before I was brought on full time. And I just thought how how sort of despicable to, to disinvite people who you work with on a daily basis from 
any kind of holiday celebration like that. It seems unnecessary. I see similar things with family not being invited to holiday parties. Great. My family's not invited. I won't be there either. Problem solved. Well, I think it'll all play out. I think the, the cool thing is that our labor market is a market. So uh, all companies have to compete for that labor. And when they make mistakes, if that makes it more challenging to, I mean, Google is all labor, right? Google is uh, one of those companies that requires really smart people all the time to compete. And so they will, uh, if things get more difficult for them, they should be uh, fighting hard to change that. I do have friends who work at Google, and I want to be very clear that I'm not being particularly damning of any individual's choice to remain there. But this is a systemic problem more than it is one for individuals. Everyone has their own circumstance, and I'm not going to shame anyone for continuing to work there for now. You never know when things cross a point past which it's just, okay, you're, you're actively building landmines that explode at a lower altitude to take out children more effectively. What are you doing? But I don't think any cloud company is there yet. Let's check back. <laughs> I, know, I do think it's, it's interesting how they seem to be struggling. And even Facebook is struggling at this level of like, what is the right messaging, corporate brand identity that meets their business interests as well as doesn't alienate their employees. And even Amazon to some extent has this problem too between, you know, the warehouse workers and then the, uh, you know, tech staff who's concerned about privacy. It, like, it seems like between Google and Facebook and Amazon that we're really sort of at this bellwether of the tech industry and, and what does it mean to be the tech industry and what does the culture of a successful tech company look like in a year or two from now, you know, where it's not all about, squeezing as much value out of my data or your data. It's not about, you know, making shareholders happy. It's about doing the right things for society as a larger whole. You know, what does that mean? And I do feel like we're in this very interesting looking glass period where the model's changing, the world is changing, the politics have changed. These companies are going to be drastically different in, you know, relatively two to three years. And they may not all survive that change. I'm not sure yet. I think we're going to find out. So uh, tied to things that make my predictions for 2019 look really smart, DigitalOcean uh, launched a managed database service this last week. Uh, it is a managed database for Postgres, similar to RDS. It does provide encryption at rest and in flight. Take note, Amazon MVP can include data at rest and in flight. And uh, DigitalOcean does say they plan to expand to other database solutions like MySQL and others in the future. I thought what was interesting that's missing from the announcement is any comparison of their managed database offering uh, to the other offerings like RDS. You know, you have this fundamental difference in the market between two things people sell, products and services. And products, usually you need to have a differentiator. And services, the most important thing is to have a value proposition. And I think it's just kind of interesting to me. I started looking at it like, oh, look at that. It's a service. It's not a product. Um, specifically because we don't need a differentiator. We can just have a value proposition. I guess the value is if you already have a footprint on DigitalOcean, now you don't need to spin up your own or leave DigitalOcean for another provider. Yeah, no, a huge, huge value proposition, but no differentiators. Well, I don't know that they want to compete at that level quite yet either. Um, you know, it's a brand new service. It is still somewhat limited preview beta access. Um, and I imagine that as they tune it and they get better, they'll start, you know, getting more comparisons out there. But they're also somewhat frenemies with all of these cloud providers in some ways. DigitalOcean in particular has sort of always kind of tried to play nice with the bigger providers and pointing out why their performance is way better than everyone else may not be the right 
marketing message for them. They don't want to make an enemy out of a frenemy at this point. I am pleased to led with Postgres instead of MySQL. MySQL has been the, the go-to easy button for database services for years, you know, 20 years. Well, that's a larger systemic shift throughout the industry that we're starting to see. People are increasingly embracing Postgres first. I will also add that I don't believe that DigitalOcean is competing with AWS, with GCP, with Azure. They're selling point has always been that getting up and running with DigitalOcean is streamlined and fast without having to go to cloud school for 12 weeks to figure out how all these different services work together and what you might need. And I think every large environment I've ever seen on one of the major cloud providers also has something, be it a marketing site, a status site, something on DigitalOcean. It's not getting a lot of the attention that you see throughout the cloud world, the way the larger providers are, but they're everywhere. And they certainly don't seem to be slowing down any. The fact that they're expanding in a reasonable, rationed way towards embracing new managed service offerings, be they databases, their new Kubernetes service, this is indicative of wanting to maintain that and grow that footprint. But I don't think it ever is going to come down to a discussion where someone's talking about, well, we're going to do a massive $80 million expansion. Is it going to be on DigitalOcean or is it going to be on Azure? I just don't see them playing in that market in that way. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think they need to. Well, I do hope you're wrong because I am rooting for them to be the number four player in the cloud space. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't really think they are competing in many ways. I think they, they see themselves as complementary and uh, a quick, rapid move to the cloud is what they're, what they're trying to offer you with high performance. And when you outgrow their platform, they're not super sad about it. But uh, I am glad to see them continue to build out you know, beyond the primitives. I think it's a, it's a good move for them. I think it kind of lines up nicely with what they've been doing with you know VPC networking designs and some of their other Kubernetes offerings. I, I think it's overall, it's, it's a good move for them. And I think it's the right move in the right direction for a company that is a contender to be number four. <laughs> well, and any competition is good competition. It's good to keep all these guys on their toes. Yeah, well, I mean, they first came out, remember their big play was, you know, they had SSD disk. Yeah, that was great. And then everyone else got SSD disk too, and they had to pivot. And I think they've done a good job navigating choppy waters. Amazon has introduced uh, lower cost storage for EFS. EFS being the very, very expensive <laughs> uh, NFS storage solution designed for HPC workloads. Uh, this new infrequent access tier for EFS now allows you to have a tiering model similar to what you have in S3. They are recommending it for files that are not accessed every day. I bet Corey might have something to say about costs and this one. Nice thing about this is it's click a button that works. It doesn't require you to run any sort of analytics or inventory in your existing file systems. It, you just turn it on and it does the monitoring for you. You don't have to wind up looking at various A-time metrics to figure out what to transition. It just does it for you. There is a relatively small fee for monitoring this. So if you have a crap ton of small files, it may very well not be the right answer for your workload. So take a quick look at that and just validate it. But that largely is going to be something that is only going to be a net positive for the vast majority of use cases. I'm a fan. Uh, as much as I like to rail against the idea of EFS in that it's NFS for the cloud, which is generally not of great cloud native architecture with a counterpoint that you really have to meet customer workloads where they are. So it's either that or beg Amazon to let you shove a NetApp into US East 1. I've tried. Mm -hmm. They won't let you. Yeah, I mean, NFS isn't a good, I'd say it's not a good... Uh architecture at scale, period. But EFS is a huge enabler for people who are migrating workloads to the cloud. And they went with the you know 3AZ 
model and they need the performance, which dictated the 30 cents per gig per month price tag. And everyone looks at that and and compares it to S3 and just kicks themselves if they're stuck on it. So this is this is this is cool because it allows people to migrate these workloads, get some reasonable level of performance, but most important, get that level of uh, compatibility that they need to get on the cloud first. And then you know the reality is, fifteen percent of their data maybe they're touching on a regular basis, and they could just bulk lift and shift and pay whatever you know double the S three price as compared to EFSIA but nothing compared to, you know, over 10x and just get it over with and then get to the business of transforming, which is where they're really going to save their money. I wish they were a little bit more open in what they consider to be infrequent access. Does that mean once a day? Does that mean once and never? Uh, you know, it's a little bit opaque in some of this language they've used in this announcement as well as in the FAQ and the other documentation. Um, so, you know, do I... Do I accidentally run a job that scans my entire EFS file system like antivirus or something? And then all of a sudden I've accessed that file system more than the infrequent level and now I'm paying for a higher tier. I wish they were a little bit more transparent on some of those details. Um, and I actually have the same complaint about the S3 automated tiering solution as well. Um, but, you know, yeah, 85% savings uh, on EFS in some cases is a, is a pretty substantial savings and something that customers are desperately looking for if they're heavily using EFS. I did the math on S3 when they announced IA for S3. And back then, the number came out to basically if you were accessing the entire data set once per month, it was break even. The thing about S3 infrequent access is that there's a minimum data retention period of 30 days. So you, you can't store stuff there for a week and, and, and make it cheaper. And I think the reason this just looks a bit not transparent in pricing is that you know there's no limits. There's no, you can only access this once a week and then it goes back up to standard rates. The, the reason it's cheaper is they're, they're offsetting the cost of storage with um, a cost per access to the, to the object. It's also easy to lose sight of a lot of the companies that are using this sort of thing. It, if we're talking about our personal backups or something we're using on our development boxes and we have an eight gigabyte uh, mount or something, that's great. That doesn't really move the needle. There are companies out there with multiple petabytes or in a couple of cases, exabyte scale workloads living on these things. And at that point, you turn on some, anal some analysis and, it, and you discover that 0.1% uh, of the objects over 30 days old are ever accessed again. At that point, turning on a something like the infrequent access is just an absolute no-brainer. It doesn't tend to move the needle very much at small scale. And that's sort of the problem I keep running into. When they announced intelligent tiering for S3, I was super excited for my own workload until I realized that my personal S3 bill is $1.02 a month, 95 cents of which are puts from CloudTrail logs. And now I'm sad again. Yeah. I mean, NetApp have had the tiered storage solution for, for quite a while. This seems to be uh, still very expensive, but uh, in in fairly direct competition with the NetApp's uh, idea of migrating cold storage to to S3 and keeping the rest on um, SSD. You mentioned earlier that you can't put a, a NetApp in East One, but uh, NetApp will sell you uh, NetApp filers and their cloud volume service next to East One. <laughs> so they'll they'll try, they'll get close. They just can't get in Amazon's data center, but. Uh, yeah, you know, I, again, I think this is a good savings for companies that can use it. I just wish it was less opaque. I agree with you there. Part of the problem with a lot of these things that save money is the only realistic way to get actual dollars and cents savings is to implement it in C. And that's awesome for some things and horrifying for others. It's really horrifying when you think you're saving money and then you accidentally spent way more money. 
uh, I have a Synology NAS at home and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just do backups from this to S3. And, you know, I followed some guide I found on the internet on Synology website. And, you know, the next thing I know, I have a $300 bill because it was doing snapshot replication to S3. And so I wasn't getting any of the advantages of tiering or, you know, Glacier or any of that kind of stuff. And I realized, oops, uh, and had to fix that really quickly. And and now I have what I really wanted, which was basically a, a sync job that syncs it to S3. And I'm much happier with my bill. But those oopses can be really expensive. And, and my little NAS at home is not anything near, you know, the 22 and a half petabytes I have in my day job. That if I accidentally put them in the wrong tier could cost me a material impact to our financial statement. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of differences in, in scale that you, you know, hit really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. Above a certain point of scale, even leaking credentials winds up not being as big of a concern. I mean, if you're spending tens of millions a year on AWS, someone gets a set of credentials and starts mining Bitcoin everywhere. You've got to spin up a lot of stuff to materially move the needle on spend that high. Uh, whereas for those of us who have home labs that we spend tens of dollars on, Oh, a surprise $15,000 bill. Cool, cool. First, I'm going to see if they'll waive it. And if not, I'm changing my name and fleeing the country. <laughs> Indeed. Amazon has apparently decided to flee New York. They have dropped their plans for HQ2 in New York City. This is occurring because of uh, increased pushback from both the local governments and citizens of New York. The tax breaks and anti-unionization efforts of Amazon are the two biggest complaints from the protesters. Uh, they have no plans to reopen the HQ2 search, which, thank goodness, because I don't know if I could deal with another 12 months of them talking about HQ2. Uh, and instead, we'll focus on North Virginia and Nashville. Um, I saw a great article, and I don't have the link to it here, but someone was talking about it's like having two prom dates. And everyone's saying, you can't have two prom dates to high school prom. It doesn't make sense. And after one of them got difficult and their parents kept saying, no, 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 you can't, you can't come or you can't take my daughter to the prom, they've uh, decided, yes, you're right, I can't do that. And so has just walked away from this deal altogether. Um, but, you know, it, very interesting. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the press and from politicians that, you know, Amazon wasn't tough enough to, to do things in New York. And I don't know if that's the case, but I, I definitely don't think this particular amount of protest made sense for them to continue to take the, the damage, their reputation that they were taking. Yeah, it just means they don't need New York that much. Yeah, I, I definitely think New York's missing out more than than Amazon in this one. You know, twenty five thousand jobs um, is a lot uh, of jobs to turn away from and, and really miss out on. So, you know, interesting in that they're not going to do it, but um, also a bummer for New York. And and also, there's a ton of great tech startups in the New York area that you know could have been good pools of talent for them. Um, I do have some friends in Northern Virginia though who are super excited about them coming there, and so. You know, I think overall they're going to end up being happy with what they end up with, but you know, definitely a big political story in the last week. I've never seen a really good comparison. People complain about the, the tax breaks and the incentives that big companies like Amazon are given to move to a certain area and open headquarters. I've never seen a really good comparison between the, the tax dollars which which were paying them as an incentive versus the benefit to the local economy. I wish like the Washington Post or somebody would have actually gone into this in a bit more detail. If you are interested in that type of data, who is the Apple manufacturer of iPhones in China? Uh, has that huge plant they're building in Wisconsin and Foxconn, thank you. Foxconn. And uh, Trump basically, you know, announced, you know, they're doing a huge Foxconn plant in Wisconsin and, and all that. And there's been a lot of really good analysis and articles about how much money Wisconsin was giving to Foxconn and how much money was not going to be returned to the economy. And they've actually broken down a lot of those um, those questions you just asked, Jonathan. Um, and I really recommend checking that out because there's been some fantastic um, reporting in ProRepublica and a couple others. Um, they have not done it for Amazon, but I, I definitely don't think the Amazon deal was quite as, uh, you know, give away the baby and the bathwater and the house 
um, to get that business, where the Wisconsin deal was a bit more of that. I mean, I guess one of the problems we have here in the in the Bay Area is is housing and the the the, the rate at which houses or any kind of housing are being built is nowhere near the demand. And I, I'm pretty sure New York suffers from the same problem. So I I appreciate some of the pushback from people. You know, gentrification is is a big issue. So I'm, I'm not surprised that, that there's a lot of pushback from the New Yorkers. But what I am surprised about is that we got this far down the path before they bailed on New York. Yeah, it definitely seems like they could have figured this out with some studies and some analysis beforehand. But you know, there's also 250 other cities that submitted proposals for HQ2. You know, And there was criticism that they even chose New York at all because there's already a ton of great tech companies there. There's a ton of great talent already there. Um, where they could have gone into someplace like Detroit or you know somewhere in the Midwest that doesn't have a big tech center and they could have built something really special. Um, so it, it's been a very contentious uh, fight, you know, fight to find HQ2 for a while now. And I think it's an area that Amazon will maybe think differently. And I, I do suspect this will become a case study in some uh, college textbooks in the future about how not to do <laughs> uh, a large tax incentive-based program like this. Yeah, it's a very, very public way to shame yourself. I'm just hoping they stay out of any area where I'm trying to recruit. <laughs> Fair enough. Azure has released uh, Monitoring at Scale, uh, which they have basically created a new multi-resource metrics alert, which initially when I read this, I was like, oh, this is this is totally lightning round material. Uh, but when I actually read into it a little bit further, um, I was a little bit surprised. It's, so what they've done is if you have an auto-scaling group or you have a pool of servers, let's say you know 20 or 30 instances that are all running the same application in a load balancer configuration, you can basically set up at a global level for all 20 of the servers uh, the metrics and alerts that you want on those metrics. So if you want to know CPU for all of them, you just set it at this at this metric level, um, multi-resource metric level, and then um, it'll do those alerts. But you, you do that and you also don't lose the ability to deep dive into individual instances. So it gives you the granularities in multiple dimensions, both from the per host level as well as from the roll-up level um, but for t- companies that are doing a lot of massive rollouts of instances or have very standardized monitoring rules, um, this can actually really simplify a lot of the monitoring story for your infrastructure. Well, number one, I didn't know people deployed that much stuff on uh, the Microsoft Cloud. Set number two, <laughs> there's, there's the lightning round comment. Number two, CloudWatch has done this for years. I mean, it's no big deal. It, it, they always had a roll-up to, um, to all those scaling groups with exactly the same metrics. It's not very forward thinking well as we've talked about on this podcast azure has a lot of uh, catch-up features that they're developing but this one does feel maybe a little bit different than cloudwatch um so i don't know that in cloudwatch i can actually specify on these 20 nodes i want them to all monitor cpu memory and disk space and have alerting rules based on that grouping i believe i do have to still go to the instance level on ec2 in cloudwatch i think I, i don't know I've I stopped monitoring CPU a long time ago. It's not it's not a good metric. CPUs CPUs are designed to run at one hundred percent. That's that's why they're rated at one hundred percent. If it's running less than one hundred percent, then you're allocating too many resources, or you could be doing more work on the box. I mean, load average is one thing. CPU useless. So well, <laughs> my example monitor metric is probably not the right choice, but uh, <laughs> you got my point. I, I got Companies spend huge dollars on monitoring tools. And if these, if any of the providers get it right, get enough features, they've always been this sort of add-on, like it's kind of free it's or it's really cheap, but you still need to run your own uh, monitoring tools to really run a production site. 
And anytime these guys get closer and closer to uh, a tool that could be the only monitoring tool, I think that you'll see, uh, I mean, there, there's, there's a ton to gain there. I think this is a transitional step in that a few years from now, ideally, we don't care about monitoring individual servers or even individual auto-scaling groups. I think we care about application monitoring and the infrastructure that powers it is one of those things that sort of slips beneath the waves at which point we just care about latency, responsiveness, error counts, and everything else just sort of goes away and is abstracted below the level where we have to care about it unless we're an infrastructure provider ourselves. Maybe that's an idealistic view of the future, but for at least pure serverless workloads today, we're kind of already there. Well, now that we've all been schooled on not monitoring CPU usage, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about IBM. So uh, IBM this week had IBM Think conference, uh, where their CEO basically said they're coming out to be the biggest player in what they consider to be a new $1 trillion cloud uh, market, which they're calling Chapter 2. Their CEO, Remedi, basically says that Chapter 1 was the first 20%, the easy stuff to move to cloud that startups and other small entities could use, but enterprises need more than that. And they think they have all the solutions and all the capabilities to provide you something they're called hybrid computing, uh, which is all known by all everyone else as hybrid cloud. So they're seeing the combination of data center and cloud computing as the future of chapter two, and they're going to be a dominant player in the space. Okay, let's tee up this one for a drive down the fairway of hopelessness. Uh, oh, now you're going to suddenly start competing and handling large cloud workloads. Great. So people with these quote unquote legacy workloads that you're not going to trust to existing cloud providers, suddenly you're going to roll that out to IBM, a company that has demonstrated no particular competence in the world of public cloud and has a somewhat strange track record over the past two decades or so of being an innovator in the cloud computing space. It sounds great if you assume that other providers are holding still while IBM spends the next five years building these things, but next reInvent comes and Amazon releases the AWS 400 aimed at, marketing, aimed at mainframe workloads. Great. Where do you go from there? I don't see this as being a project that is going to have the outcome that they are promising people. Uh, to use the old saw, show, don't tell. Uh, turn IBM into something that is uh, enviable, that is a competitor in this space. And then let's have a conversation about that. Until then, you're just effectively Larry Ellison. Except they do own Red Hat, which does have a bigger impact on the cloud space than anything that Oracle has. Um, but I don't know that I see enough here that makes me think that IBM is going to be a market leader in this space. I mean, SoftLayer is not in the running for even number four in the space. And, you know, her opinion that the first 20% was the easy stuff. I actually think we're way beyond 20% in that we have enterprises doing major things on Amazon and Azure. IBM has not been there. They haven't built the tooling. They haven't built the capability to be a solid number, you know, solid player, even on the integration perspective. They don't have the professional services capabilities to help you move there either. So they don't have like what Accenture would have. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's a stretch for me to see them as becoming dominant in the cloud space especially in what they're calling chapter two, which is hybrid cloud, which has been going on for years now. Like, I mean, Amazon just got into it. So I guess you could say Amazon was late to the game because they just now released an on-premise solution. But, but Amazon before that also had a ton of tools to help you migrate your workload to the cloud. They've just finally acknowledged that, hey, some customers don't want that capability all in the cloud. They do want something on-premise. And so we're going to make that capability with Outposts possible. Uh, but this, we discovered a new market 
and it's called hybrid computing. It just rubs me the wrong way. It really bothers me that they think that um, with no no proven track record that they're going to be this dominant in the space. Right. They're they're naysaying the last 15 years of work by the market leaders and saying, oh, that was the easy stuff. Now the hard stuff's going to come and we're going to show you how it's done. Okay. Yeah. I think that they're, the, the piece they missed was that uh, although the easiest workloads are obviously the first to move, their the capabilities of these providers have gotten to the point I mean, in the beginning, even those were hard to move. Uh, but we should also look at what they actually said, right? So they said it's a trillion dollar opportunity and IBM intends to be number one. They didn't predict they're going to be number one. They just are going to try to be number one. So um, I love it. Well, yeah, but you also can't go on as a C-level executive of a publicly traded company and say, oh, we're going to get our asses handed to us in this race because then you wind up finding yourself replaced Absolutely. by the time you get off the stage. You've got to be up. You've got to be uplifting. You've got to be positive, but apparently yeah, you don't well, need to be they, realistic. They could intend to be number one. And if that drives competition in the space and puts a fire under the others to innovate even faster than they already are, I'll be a happy camper. Don't know the make number four on the list for 2019 as the fourth cloud provider. Well, 2019 is a bit of a stretch. I mean, IBM could go out of business today, and I don't think some of their units would know it before 2023. Amazon has announced uh, five new EC2 bare metal instances. Uh, the five new ones include the M5 metal, the R5 metal, the M5D metal, the R5D metal, and the Z1D metal, because uh, we have bad naming. But uh, they do support, uh, in the D class, they do support 3.6 terabytes of local NVMe-based SSD disk. Uh, and their M5 and R5s are balanced between compute memory networking for the M5, and the R5 is memory-intensive applications like database services. Uh, and then they can claim the Z1D is for high compute and high memory, in case you have both problems. Uh, these servers are running you between $3,200 a month and $5,000. It's a good job we can rent those things by the hour. Well, who runs them by the hour? I don't, I'm not familiar with that concept. <laughs> uh, the metal server seemed like even less likely to be run by the hour. Because if you think about it, if you're running the metal server, you're either going to be running VMware on top of that metal hardware, or you're going to be running, running your own container or Lambda orchestration layer. Um, I, I don't really see auto scaling or you know per hour pricing being a big play here, but you know maybe it is. Well, I think th there's still be a spot market for it, and I think instances of this size and that without much storage and compute are, are sort of well in the ballpark for um, training machine learning models and things like that. My my concern about having greater and greater access to bare metal instances is that all the old-fashioned appliances are going to come back again. We're going to start having our, our net apps and our network monitoring devices. And everything. In a way, I think it's kind of enabling a step backwards for some people. I think you might be looking at it from the wrong angle as well. This also opens up a door for an end run around a number of existing license restrictions that don't permit certain software to be run in a virtualized environment. But now that it's a metal server, it's not really virtualized anymore. And suddenly the door opens up to migrating previously uh, on-prem bound uh, workloads to the cloud. And to be clear, the licensing costs on those things mean that the cost of the instances yeah. rounds to roughly nobody cares. I'm also I'm also a little bit on the fence. I think there are two very viable workable theories for the way they name these things. Uh, the first is that it these are named by two opposing Amazon SVPs who are playing a multi-year long game of Battleship. 
And that would explain the, the choice. The other is that someone dramatically misunderstood a competitive threat analysis. We're going to beat GCP. We're going to declare war on Alphabet. And they accidentally declared war instead on the English Alphabet. I'm a little bit bothered by this nomenclature that they've come out with, the the instance type, then the D, which apparently stands for the NVMe SSDs. The N for the networking at the higher speeds, the 25 gigabit and 40 gigabit, um, it just, it, it really muddies the waters on what these instances are. And I think it just causes confusion. I don't know if there's an easy fix for this naming convention problem. Uh, and there are other naming problems that they should fix. Like I'm looking at you, Elemental. Um, but they, I feel like there's got to be an easier way to declare what these things are with that, you know, makes sense to the, the average user. Well, remember the P3DN.24X large is the first instance that they've released that's named after a dump of its firmware. I don't know. Car companies have been trying and failing at this activity for a long time, so it must be harder than it looks. Oh, it absolutely is. And I think this is an example of the old saw. Naming is one of the two hard problems in computer science. Yeah. So just give up and don't bother. Just a random hash for each new one that comes you know who, out. You know who has the best solution for this problem? It's a little company in Redmond. They came out with a thing called a GUID. And I think the GUID could be the future of all naming of instance types. <laughs> you know, if, if only they could kind of abstract the compute away and just kind of allocate some kind of virtual compute unit to, to each of these instances. So you didn't have to care about what the underlying hardware was. And you could just buy like two vCPUs or five vCPUs, whatever you needed to get the job done. What a novel idea. <laughs> yeah. Amazon has updated their professional level certifications, which is at terrible timing because it's time for me to renew my DevOps Pro. Um, so uh, that's coming up very rapidly at reInvent, so I better start studying now. So the Certified Solutions Architect now covers five domains, design for organizational complexity, design for new solutions, migration planning, cost control, and continuous improvements uh, for existing solutions. Those are the new five domains of the architecture or architect. The DevOps Pro now covers six domains, SDLC automation, configuration management and infrastructure as code, monitoring and logging, policies and standard automation, incident and event response, and HA fault tolerance and DR. Now, I will point out that as I read that out loud to you, it occurred to me that they have combined a lot of ands into these items. And there's really like 30 domains there, but they say there are six. Yeah, really. I think it's cool. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's just funny because it just represents to me the maturity in the space since V1.0 of these came out, which were not really focused on... I mean, you can see these are all the problems that Amazon sees their customers having now. Version 1.0 was how do you configure auto scaling across availability zones? It's come so far. Yeah, it's interesting that they see these as the core components of each certification. I would like to see them start expanding out the add-on certs, like the security and some of those. Some of these, I feel like they should be broken out into you know add-in addendum certificates, basically. Um, like infrastructure as code, while you know knowing what CloudFormation is is super important. I don't know that it's important for to be a DevOps pro that I know how to write that, but I should be able to get my DevOps pro certification and then add you know security and infrastructure as code and a couple other things, and then I can really kind of beef out my pro certification in the areas that I'm really strong in. Um, but you know, it makes sense at this point in time that they're trying to focus it and level set it at some some area. Um, I look forward to learning what they consider SDLC automation to be with code commit and code deploy. Uh, as <laughs> it's it's pretty weak uh, right now, but I am curious to see kind of what this test looks like, and I can't wait for the training partners to get updated so I can start studying. 
One of the problems that I've always had with the certification exams is understanding when they were built. If I'm in a situation where I'm taking a test, I need to remember at what point a change that impacts the answer came out and was it before or after this cert was updated? Yeah, that is a big problem because I know I took my first certification test, you know, six months after they made major changes to the VPC design. And so there were several things like ENIs that didn't exist at the time the test was written, but exist now. And so they're like, you know, what if you have this scenario? And one of the options is you, you would attach an ENI to the instance to get more throughput. Well, that answer when the test was written is wrong. But that answer today is correct. So <laughs> it is a problem with how do they keep up with their rapid rate of change and rapid amount of new features to where the testing are, is at. You know, how do they build a test around that rapid change? And so they're trying to keep it very high level to basically allow you to make changes. But you know, something like CloudFormation even, which is in the infrastructure's code space, would be drift detection wasn't a feature pre-reInvent. But now after reInvent, you have drift detection. Like Even like simple features inside these primitives that they feel are critical to being certified. You know, we've been doing this podcast since December, and we've probably talked about 100 different features that have been added to CloudFormation in that short period of time. Oh, yeah. It seems like a new feature gets announced. Two years go by. Finally, you wind up with the certification addressing it. <laughs> and then CloudFormation supports that feature. Speaking of DevOps, when I think of DevOps in the cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS... Asia, and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their FogOps services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. How lucky are we? You know, there's, a, there's another AWS. We learned this when we started doing like our first AdWords advertising. Can you imagine the email they must How get? How much do you think their test has changed in the last two years? I mean, we, we are very lucky. That's a lucky. really good question. I... Don't know. I don't think anything amazing has happened in welding in a while. I, I think more things have changed in our industry. I'm betting. I will put. I will. I will put that down. I will put money on. Every single time I figure, oh, that's it's just welding. How hard could it be? I learned that there's an entire world that I know absolutely nothing about. That's super nuanced, constantly changing, and a series of some contentious debate. And at this point, I'm willing to state, yeah, that is not nearly as static a field as we probably think yeah, it is. Yeah, that's probably fair. I'll put money on the other AWS. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I talk to somebody, I'm like, oh, yeah, I work on the public cloud on top of Amazon Web Services. They're like, you mean the store? I'm like, yeah, they, they make a whole infrastructure that you can buy by the hour and you know, their eyes glaze over. It's very clear they have no idea of Amazon as anything beyond a company that sells them books and, and things that deliver the next day on Amazon Prime. I gave up on explaining to people what I do a while ago. Of course, as honorable tradition of the cloud pod, Google had, has announced an acquisition of the day of recording uh, and not the day after recording, which is a super win for us. So they announced this morning that they are buying cloud migration startup Aluma, a six-year-old Israeli-based company. Uh, they had previously raised $16 million from Sequoia. Uh, and they are building products to allow you to collect data from multiple sources and import them into a common data lake. And so this is a tool to help you move your data from the cloud or from the private cloud to the public cloud uh, and enable you to use all those amazing products from Google like BigQuery or Redshift on Amazon. 
the interesting thing is that even on their website, they refer to themselves as plumbers. <laughs> they see their job as being not very sexy, but something super critical to the world and to the function. So Google has bought them. Uh, it does support multiple clouds if you were a customer prior to this morning. Uh, but after acquisition, they will only be taking new customers moving to the Google Cloud. And of note, this is the first acquisition under the new Google Cloud CEO, Thomas Kurian. Slow down their hasty pudding. It's entirely possible that between <laughs> the time we record this and the time it goes out, that they will deprecate the entire thing. That's it's true. Good. They'll deprecate all the other migration tools they've already bought this year. How much of this is actually the tooling and how much is how much is professional services? Because I don't think any tool in the world can can go into some random business uh, connect to a bunch of databases and make meaningful sense of anybody's data without talking to people about their business processes, uh, the data they have, you know, how it's classified, and and how they want to use it once it's migrated. So I'm I'm, I'm questioning how much how much is intellect uh, of people versus tooling. I agree. I don't think any company can just drop into <laughs> any shop, even a company that specializes in SAP. Every SAP implementation is different. It'd be very difficult for any one company to say, you know, we have the SAP connector to rule them all uh, and be able to cover all the customers. So I, I imagine it's a bit of a combination of people and technology. The fact that the company is only six years old and only has raised $16 million makes me think it's probably a pretty small shop. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps highlighting that the biggest pain uh, for to get uh, a blocker for people to move to the cloud is this migration piece. And this is the fourth one this year, uh, the migration slash DR type tools that really help get data and workloads to the cloud that have been acquired, and uh, you know if these if these tools help and add a lot of value, but are very expensive. What gr what a great win to just quickly pick up the tool, lower the price, and make it single uh, single cloud focused. So it makes tons of sense to me. If there's any left, uh, any of those companies left, I'd be watching them next. The skeptic in me says maybe the acquisition was more about stopping people using the tool to migrate to other clouds rather than enabling people to migrate to the Google Cloud. For you, the listeners of the CloudPod podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook downloaded with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod for your free audiobook. All right, and that wraps up this week's news. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Peter for the amazing lightning round. All right, round. current scoring, we've got uh, Jonathan and Justin tied at two wins apiece. I'm only one behind, and I'm tied actually in second place, but I'm also tied for last place with the aggregate score of our guests since we've only had one. Uh, so we're, we're tied at one. And the rules are pretty simple. Uh, there's no real objective way to determine a winner. And since there's no money or anything behind it, I don't think anybody really cares other than for bragging rights. But what I tend to do is, since I can't keep track of everything everyone says during this round, whatever the one thing is that catches me off guard and makes me laugh is the one who wins. So uh, maybe maybe with respect, or maybe uh, except for last week, although you might have had both, Justin, with uh, the sustained drive of the best comment on everyone plus making me laugh once. There really are no rules is what we've established. There are no rules, but uh, one, basically one good comment could take it all. So I'll run through uh, some news items, give your uh, little note if you've got something to say about it, and we'll move on. First one, AWS Guard Duty adds three new threat detections to her pen test related 
And the third is new policy violation detection. Oh, AWS Mall Cop is out of beta. (laughs) (laughs) Great. More things for my security team to complain about. I think we should discuss some kind of handicapping. Since we have Corey on the show today, I think we should at least like deduct a half a point from anything that he does. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Unfortunately, this is not golf. (laughs) AWS Document DB now supports database auditing via CloudWatch logs. That seems like it's awfully complex to get into. I'll just wait for the shrieking uh, summary on the MongoDB corporate blog. Mm -hmm. Again, my trend of why is this not an MVP feature? You know, if of all the things that I could do with a database, I maybe want to know when someone drops a table. I I mean, I just maybe just just put it out there. I wonder if Logly is going to complain. About this one. Well, Logly has a lot more to complain about <laughs> than just that. AWS Amplify Framework adds support for multiple environments and IAM roles, including MFA. Well, I wanted to update my static website, but then I lost my MFA token and all was lost. I like how Amplify is increasingly becoming what AWS should have been if they'd known then what they know now. Call it BWS. Nothing from Jonathan. All right. Yeah. He's, he's shut out. He's, he just doesn't know what to do with himself. AWS Corretto 11 is now in preview. Couldn't have held the announcement last week that Corretto 8 was in GA until this week to you know just wrap it up in one press release. No, no, let's get the news for two. Not only that, they did say last week that the builds for Corretto 11 wouldn't be available till April, and here it is, February. So as much fun as I as much as I want to make fun of Corretto's name, I really have only myself to blame for a service named after a drink. It's sort of in line with Java, right? I, I see where they're going. Java, Corretto, it's a type of coffee drink. I I see the play. I give them credit for it. It's still a terrible name. It's still one more than any of the numbers on my amp. Crank it up uh, to Corretto. <laughs> that's right. Crank it up to Corretto. Amazon MSK aka managed kafka expands preview to ohio and ireland and now supports kafka 2.1 so we're going to eliminate the ohio and ireland from the conversation and just talk about kafka 2.1 excuse me that's pronounced amazon musk she's elon's sister and the least you can do is talk about her own contributions (laughs) aws eks releases vpc cni plugin and P3DN instances. Funny enough, that's the MAC address for all of the jumbo frames is P3DN. We start that way. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing on that one. Nope. Nothing. All right. <laughs> it's a big bust. <laughs> Amazon DynamoDB DAX now supports DynamoDB transactions for Python and .NET. I'm going to start releasing services that nobody can use because I don't build support into any of the SDKs. It sounds sounds like a great way to release new features. I'm holding on for Perl support. How about Ruby for DAX? Can I get Ruby? You'll get it from me. I'm I'm all on board with that. Windows batch. We need Windows batch files. AWS Aurora, now compatible with Postgres 10.6. It's great to see Postgres adoption, and I'm enthusiastic about Amazon's new attempt to name their services after Disney princesses. If only they'd get Postgres 11 support in there since that's only been out for several months now be patient be patient at least you don't have to do it that's the key aws certified professionals now have new badges oh awesome let me log in and check mine oh and they designed it in microsoft word apparently i guess if i wanted to flaunt the fact that i have a certification i could have done this instead of the podcast jonathan no jonathan (laughs) jonathan has no idea what's happening He's like high on night. I totally had the best comment ever, except I was muted. Oh, do it again. I'm not sure. I'm not sure oh. ever come out the same again. <laughs> Didn't you just tweet, Justin, the, the, the link to your certifications? I did, because I had to try it out when I put this in the show notes. 
GCP introduces scheduled snapshots for persistent disk. Well, deprecating ad hoc snapshots for same. Well, I'm glad they finally hit feature parity with Azure, who announced the same feature three weeks ago. It seems to be trending towards this. This everyone's having the same feature set. It's kind of disappointing. If only, if only there was a sign of a maturing cloud market. I can't wait until we don't need snapshots at all. Yeah, I mean, disk snapshots are just not reliable. You'll still need them because compliance will still require you to have them because they don't understand anything else. But <laughs> okay, I can't wait for thirty years to pass. I guess AWS introduces the new solution center to quickly find solution quick starts, which is very similar to the serverless application repo, except maybe people will use this one. I mean, I was a little disappointed that there was a lot of very old solutions that should desperately be updated to something slightly better. Uh, but I'm glad they centralized them. I least. just hope they they actually maintain these things and create them so that we don't have people walking them to our desks uh, asking why they can't get these, uh, like, NAT instances are a classic example. Like, I'm following this blog post from 2010. It just doesn't seem to be working anymore. Like, yeah, they should have taken those posts down. There's, there's so much junk in the documentation. I, I really hope they do a good job of maintaining this now. You know, I think one of our blog posts that is still the most popular is our blog post on highly available NAT. So... I'm part of the problem. Sorry. Uh, and the last one for the round, speaking of solution quick starts, there's a new AWS solution for EKS, which is a quick start. I mostly add this one here because I, I wanted to give you a props, Peter, for your Kubernetes prediction Ooh, for 2019. Yeah. I just put it here for you. It was, it was all about you. Okay. Well, I'll <laughs> savor it for a little bit and then I'll let someone else say something. And I also strategically place it at the end of the lightning round to hopefully goose my chances <laughs> for winning the lightning round. Oh. Nice. <laughs> this is the first time that the term EKS has appeared in the same sentence as the phrase quick start. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time anytime anyone's ever mentioned Kubernetes and quick start in the same sentence. Not alone EKS. That is the end of our lightning round. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was over. It was over. You had me at Musk. That, that, that did it. <laughs> that yeah. was that was pretty clever. <laughs> and I, I think this is the first time we've had Jonathan basically get shut out in the lightning round. Was, he's not on this game. Awesome. That's okay. I think he's going to come back. I think he's it's because he's not even listening. He's just reading the notes on next week's to load up and try and win next week. I think he's dealing with his uh, his son in the background too, who like who wants to talk to him. He, he's a day sicker than me, and so I'll, I'll be. Screaming and whining, kicking my feet just like he is tomorrow, probably. <laughs> at least keep that at home. Don't bring well, that. Well, Corey, the congratulations! You came in and you killed it. You get the you get the victory today. We've got uh, our guests tied for first place, doubling the score of me. Good job. Well, thank you. Uh, you can send your check to Peter. Just leave it blank. He'll fill it out for you as appropriate. That's how Amazon billing works. Yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, let's go to you for cool tools this week, which uh, took a hiatus last week, but you're back with a vengeance. So this week, I just wanted to mention briefly one of my cool tools, which has saved my skin a number of times. When I first started working with CloudFormation, I guess it was around about six years ago, we were managing these enormous JSON documents that weren't really very good tools for for building those things. And the, the missing comma of death or the missing bracket of death became a, a routine issue to deal with. I kind of count the hours I spent trying to find errors, you know, where the JSON linter wouldn't find where where the uh, the missing piece was, it just wouldn't run. And beyond compare, saved me a number of times diffing old and new versions of JSON documents. It's available for Mac and Windows. I believe it's available for Linux as well. And uh, it's like diff on steroids. I think the feature that sells me on it the most is the the three way merge, where you can take two old files and you can cherry pick lines 
from each to, to build a new file. And you can also mark uh, areas of text which you don't care about, so they get excluded from the match. It's a commercial product. I love it. I use it. It integrates with, with Git and other source control tools. Anyone else use it? I have not, but I am super intrigued by this, especially that three-way merge. Ooh, that'd actually be kind of cool. So I, I, I'm going to check this one yeah, out. Yeah, you get like uh, a, a really long introductory period. You know, they, they get you hooked on it for, you get, you get 30 days worth of usage, which for me lasted quite a long time. But then once that's up, then you gotta pay you gotta pay for it, but it's well worth the cost. Is it like a WinZip level of paying for it? Like just to keep ignoring the message or do I do I actually No, after thirty days you, you, you can either buy a new Mac for three thousand dollars or you can just pay for the tool. Oh wow, fantastic. I can't wait to buy that new Mac. All right, well that's cool. Where can we find this cool tool, Jonathan? We can certainly find the link to it the in the show notes at the cloudpod.net. Well fantastic. Uh Corey, did you also say you had a cool tool you wanted to share? Just kind of move in on Jonathan's turf here? Oh, so many. But one of the easy go-tos is an open source tool called Cloud Custodian. It came out of Capital One. It effectively enforces policy, helps do cost allocation. It requires a little bit of twiddling to get it up and running intelligently, but it's well worth investing in if you're looking at something a little larger scale. That's been a focus for me on one of my projects for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we use it all the time uh, in tons of our customers. One of my complaints with Cloud Custodian was that they didn't really have a repo of pre-built scripts. And so it's kind of like you have this amazing tool with no batteries included. Have they resolved that uh, in the last few years since I looked at it last to uh, provide you know at least some, some template rules or a repo of rules you can maybe cherry pick for your usage. I'm significantly out of the common path of what I'm doing. You know, I didn't hear any complaints about learning curve from our engineers, but it fell right into the sweet spot of, it just made some of the things we were doing from scratch so much easier that that wasn't a complaint, but I could see how that would be a problem for people just getting up and running on it. Yeah, no, it has a super easy language and I met the, the person who wrote this at yeah, reInvent yeah, awesome. a couple of years ago. Sometimes it's nice to have batteries included <laughs> so you don't you know have to do that lift yourself. And, and a lot of the patterns are the same across multiple companies. And so that was it's always my one big beef with them is that they, they didn't have another repo, just kind of had example scripts. And, and I think it's partially because they're a bank and they, they don't want to share their secret sauce. Well, thanks, Corey, for that additional contribution for the Cool Tools segment. It's been fantastic having you on the episode this week. Where can people follow the snark 24-7? If you want once a week, lastweekinaws.com is probably the best place. If you want ongoing stream of snark consciousness, uh, Quinnypig on Twitter. That's Q-U-I-N-N-Y, pig, all one word. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you maybe on the show again in the future uh, for another snark-filled episode. All right, guys. Well, have a great evening and uh, we'll see you next week. See you later.